the way the book of Hebrews is structured up to this point, right at the very end of chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews sort of hits the pause button on his main train of thought because he wants to turn around and talk to his readers and to make sure that you and I are focused in on our relationship with Christ, with our growth, and with our maturity. And at the end of chapter 6, he kind of comes, he comes full circle with that thought, and in chapter 7, he returns to his main argument or his main train of thought. But we're still in the middle of this really important section in the book of Hebrews where the author tells his readers to be encouraged in their hope in Jesus Christ. This notion of hope and the promise of God is going to become critical for us this morning. And this is an important note for him to strike here at the end of chapter 6. Because what he just did in the first few verses of chapter 6 is that he warned us of the extreme consequences of neglecting the faith. And we talked about that notion of apostasy last week. And that's that extreme. He's worried throughout the book that the Christians, for one reason or another, would either just sort of grow cold to their faith or neglect meeting together, sort of let it go, maybe even in extreme cases deliberately reject it. So he's been talking about that. So it's important for him now to come back to the kind of assurance and hope that the Christian has when they are anchored in the person of Jesus Christ. So the last thought that he had in this text in chapter 6, verse 12, is this, so that you may not be sluggish. Let's not be lazy in our faith, but let's be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So his last thought before moving into our passage today is that we ought to learn how to imitate the faithful who have gone before us. We really can't underestimate the importance of faithful examples in our lives, people that we pay attention to specifically, people whose lives we learn from. Nobody is perfect, but there are faithful examples in our lives and those who've gone before us, and we pay attention to them. Every one of us learns how to live, relate, speak, think, emote through the examples that we have around us. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, have we been deliberate? Have we on purpose placed some of those examples inside of our hearts and minds so that then we can learn to follow that? So here's what the writer does. He grabs a character from the Old Testament. He begins to talk about the example that this character sets and what it means for us. So here's what we're going to do this morning in our passage. First of all, we're going to learn about Abraham. Abraham obeyed the promise that God gave him. So Abraham receives this very specific, incredible promise from God. The promise is tested. It's tested over time. It's tested through extreme events inside of his life. But Abraham remains faithful. So we begin to look at Abraham as an example to our faith. So Abraham obeyed the promise that God gave him. The writer uses that story to make sure that we know something else. The promises of God don't change. The promises of God don't change. Now, keep an eye on this thought because we're going to come back to it later on. Guys, the nature of God secures the promises of God. Because of who He is, we know His promises are sure. The nature of God secures the promises of God. 
Because he is perfect and his character cannot change, his promises cannot change. So that's what we're going to get to talk about this morning. And then finally, this notion, some of the phrasing in Hebrews that I just, I love the most, our hope is secure in Jesus Christ. This is where we put our hope, and when we do, it is eternally secure. And we're going to ask the question, who are the people who have that kind of hope? Who are the people who live in that kind of hope? Using the example of Abraham, we see some very specific answers to that question. So let's begin reading in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13. Here's how the text goes. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. And that's one of those verses that's always on those mugs that you see in Christian bookstores, right? Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you go back and you read a couple of verses before that, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6, again, one of the other notes that he strikes before he moves into this part of the passage is that we have this full assurance of hope in Jesus Christ. I love that kind of phrasing, a full assurance of hope. Not a semi-sort of good assurance, but a full assurance of hope in this life that's been given to us by Jesus Christ. And, and we learn how to endure as followers of Jesus whatever life may bring. This has been the train of thought that the writer has been building up to this point. And so the Old Testament is full of these examples, these individuals who endure, these individuals who are called by God, given promises by God, and they walk in faith and they receive the promises that God has given them because of that. And when we know how those stories unfold, when we actually go and read the details and learn them, we get to watch and learn how God works, how God in His power and grace and timing and wisdom works in the lives of His faithful people. And we also begin to learn what it looks like for us to be faithful. When we don't see things happening the way we want them to, when we want them to, how we want them to, how do faithful people then live, right? So using these stories actually builds our faith in our life in Jesus Christ. So the text begins by saying this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, okay, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, 
Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So this promise that uh, the writer of Hebrews uses, surely I will bless you and multiply you, comes from an incredible passage in the Old Testament. It comes from Genesis chapter 22. And I want to read the larger context for us because the writer of Hebrews just pulls sort of a couple of little phrases. But in Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18, it says this, And an angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God gives this stunning promise to Abraham. And this moment is, in fact, a reiteration of the promise that God had given Abraham. So God had given this promise to him a long time ago. And Abraham patiently waits, and Abraham follows God on his journey, and Abraham does what God commands him to do. And now at this point, it says, because you have obeyed, this promise is now secure. Guys, this is interesting when we think about the way God works in our lives and the kinds of promises He gives. God's promises, and many of you have stories that are like this. God's promises are not always the kinds of things that happen instantaneously, are they? The kind of presence and work that God has in our lives, the kinds of promises that He grants us in Scripture, sometimes the kinds of promises and things that He gives us personally are not always, maybe even rarely, the kinds of things that happen just instantaneously. Tomorrow morning is always the divine Christmas morning. (laughs) And we open up presents and everything is hunky-dory. We receive a promise. We receive even the promise of life with God, and then we need to endure. Then we need to get up tomorrow morning and be faithful to God. Then we need to walk through situations that are complicated and difficult or confusing, or we get to walk through seasons of life that are blessed and full of the goodness of God, but then we have to get up in the morning and we have to walk through life, hanging on to this promise and enduring and being faithful to what God has spoken. So we begin to live as the promise is true. So guys, this becomes important for us as we walk through life with God. When we wait on God, we learn how to trust Him. When we wait on God, we learn how to trust Him. When we learn how to do that, we actually are learning how to have a broader perspective on life than what Phil thinks needs to happen. Because I guarantee you, if you catch me on the right day after enough cups of coffee, I will tell you exactly what is supposed to happen, right? We all have that. That's my perspective. That's what I think, what I am sure is right. But when we wait on God and these things right here aren't necessarily happening like we want them to, we're learning this broader perspective, of who God is and His will and how He works and when He works and what He does in the lives of people to get things done. So we're learning how to trust Him instead of learning how to trust me about what is supposed to happen. Now, when we drift away from God because He just didn't live up to our standards or He just didn't do things the way that we wanted Him to, we reduce God to a tool in my hand. 
God has said this. God, this is who God is. And if God doesn't do this the way that I want him to, I'm going to drop him, and I'm going to pick up another tool. When this power drill dies, it's of no use to me, so I get rid of it, and I want to buy a brand new power drill because I want it to do what I tell it to do. And so when we live this life with God, and we're unwilling sometimes to wait on Him to do what He wants, we drop Him like we would a tool. But God is a person. God is the capital P person. He's not a tool for us to be used, but He's an individual for us to learn and to get to know and to live in the promises of God. He is the only wise God. So the context that we read there in Genesis chapter 22, the writer of Hebrews grabs that promise. Here's what just happened in Genesis 22. That is the chapter that deals with what is sometimes called the sacrifice of Isaac. You see, God had already promised Abraham what we read, that in his seed all the nations would be blessed. He told Abraham, look at the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea, and, and that's what the, your nation, your family is going to be like, and they will bless everyone else. So he has this son, Isaac, and what God does, he says, I want you to take Isaac to the top of the mountain. I want you to sacrifice him to me. So Abraham takes Isaac to the top of that mountain, and he prepares the altar. And Abraham lifts the knife, and an angel stops him and says, you've obeyed what God has asked you to do through something that difficult, through something that hard for us to sometimes even understand. Abraham obeyed the command of God. And this becomes this profound image of what it means for us to trust God, to fulfill His promises to His people. You see, God then tells Abraham, as He had told them before, that His children will multiply through His, as the text said, His only son Isaac. But He had just asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. We learn something incredible. The promises of God didn't depend on Isaac. They depended on God. They didn't depend on the way in which it was going to happen inside of this world through Isaac. It all depended in the end on God and who He is and what He is able to accomplish. So which individual will Abraham trust to fulfill the promise of God? And Abraham chose God in that difficult situation. If I am supposed to learn from this kind of example, the one that the writer cites, I am forced to ask the question, who or what do I trust with the promises of God? It's not what's in my hands, whatever that is. It is always God and who He is and what He can do. So, guys, all of the promises of God depend on God, not on any of the earthly things through which they may be fulfilled. So, to make that point, the writer of Hebrews begins to talk about the trustworthiness of God Himself. And here we find ourselves back at this thought at the beginning. The promises of God cannot change because His character 
cannot change. Look at verse 17 again. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. All right. When you and I read this passage out of Hebrews chapter 6 in the English language, we think, you know, this guy could have really used an editor. (laughs) Because in the English, man, this feels a little legal, this feels a little stilted. Certainly, we can rearrange these phrases, get rid of some adjectives and adverbs, and just say it as plainly as we can. It feels that way in the English because in the Greek, the writer is using legal and technical language to talk about oath-taking. Now, you and I are at least a little bit familiar with the notion of oath-taking, especially inside of a courtroom scene or uh, enlistment into the military. We take an oath in order to do certain things, and upon our word, we will do this. Inside of a courtroom, we'll place our hand upon a Bible and say, this is what, you know, what I say is going to be the truth, that kind of oath-taking. In their world, oath-taking was far more common. So when they wanted to sort of finalize this conversation, here's what I'm going to do, they would begin to say things like, and you can read this throughout the Old Testament, as the Lord, the God, you know, as the Lord my God is my witness, may He do to me, and even more so if I do not. So they hang their behavior on God and under the witness of God Himself. So the idea is, is that when they take an oath, they're, they're, they're pointing to someone or someone who is greater than themselves. Well, the writer says, well, when God makes this oath to Abraham, there's no one greater than God. So what God does is He, he takes this oath upon Himself and upon His nature in order to prove to His children, as the text says, that the unchangeable character of His purpose, and He guarantees it with an oath, Because there's no one greater than God, he invokes his own nature. So here, God is wanting to show his children that his purpose for them will not change. And that his oath to them, his covenant with his people is unbreakable. The text says, so that by two unchangeable or unbreakable things this is sure. And that's what that means, his purpose and his oath. All of that, friends, boils down to this, I think, incredible point. The point is this. God's promises are unchangeably true. God's promises are unchangeably true. They are grounded in God's very nature. God is perfectly morally good and perfect in power. So all he says is true, and he will accomplish everything he says. This is the point of this passage. Abraham endured because he knew this about God. Abraham received the promise because this is who God is, and he knew this about God. And the writer wants you and me to then to learn how to live that kind of life. This is where our hope is, is in this kind of God. Then the writer throws in this phrase that I want to take a minute to uh, talk about. And you guys know by now that when I say a minute, I mean roughly 25. He says, it is impossible for God to lie. 
Again, guys, whatever else is going on with that phrase, this is clear. This is the ultimate assurance of God's promises. If God speaks it, if God speaks it in His Word, we know it is not a lie. It is true. Everything He says is true, and He will accomplish everything He says. This curious phrase, it is impossible for God to lie. This notion shows up actually a handful of times in Scripture. Another passage comes from the book of Titus when Paul writes to the young pastor. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, he says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Or in other words, our God who never lies has promised us the hope of eternal life. And because He doesn't lie, there it is, the promise of our hope of eternal life. The language and the way it works here, especially in the English, sometimes trips us up. And sometimes it's a reason for people who are skeptics of the faith or critical of Scripture to grab this phrase and say, well, what on earth do you mean that there is something that's impossible for God to do? If God is an all-powerful being, then why is there something that He cannot do? And not just cannot, but it's actually impossible for Him to do. What do we mean by that? Well, just a couple of quick thoughts on that, guys. First of all, God is all-powerful. That's who He is. It's the definition of God. If you're going to fill out a resume to try to fill the position of God, you have to check the box that says, yes, I am omnipotent. <laughs> I am all-powerful, which means that God can do all possible things. Having the power to do something that is logically contradictory is not only impossible, it is incoherent for the nature of God. So here's how sometimes the conversation goes, and here's sometimes how maybe uh, the skeptic thinks about a passage of Scripture like this. Well, and, and this, is, this is silly, but this is often the example that's brought up sometimes in conversation. Well, if God is all-powerful, can He make a rock that he, that's too big for Him to lift? Right? That's often kind of the phrase that is given. Well, God is all-powerful, so He can do all possible things. For, an ind for a being to be all-powerful and still be able to make something that He cannot physically lift is a practical contradiction and thus incoherent. If you worship a God who is powerful enough to make something that is larger than Himself and that He cannot physically pick up, you worship an incoherence, something that does not exist. It's a practical contradiction. God can't make a square circle because that's a logical contradiction. Now, here's the point of this conversation. It is impossible for God to lie because that is a moral contradiction for the nature of God. Here's a very quick way of looking at this. God is perfectly morally good. Lying is a moral imperfection. Being incapable of lying is the moral perfection. It's impossible for God to lie exactly because He is morally perfect. You see, you and me, we are tempted to lie, and we do lie, right, to cause harm or to cover our tracks. Scripture says, in fact, that Satan is the father of lies, but here's the point of the text. God never has, and He never will lie. This is moral perfection on the part of God. So here we are again. God's promises cannot change, 
because his character cannot change. His promises are perfect because his character is perfect. Where on earth would we understand this? When this hits us, when it makes sense to us, where on earth do I want to put my hope? On a group of human beings who might have a lot of power and money, but are a pack of liars. <laughs> on my own ability and capacity to do whatever I think needs to be done, but it turns out that I, in fact, am deeply morally imperfect? Or do I want to root my soul in a God who is like this? whose promises are sure because his character is perfect and it never changes. We have this in verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This inner curtain imagery, as we've walked through Hebrews, we're becoming a little bit more comfortable with this. Again, it's another reference to the temple, that holy of holies, the smallest inner room in the temple stood behind this curtain. And the image was, again, that's where, that's where God Himself sat. That was, uh, that was where His throne room was. And He uses this image, this anchor image, that inside, behind that curtain, is where our hope is anchored. And what he means is in the presence and character of God. And nothing will ever move that hope because God is perfect and good. Isn't that incredible? So the anchor of our hope, those who follow Jesus Christ, is firmly planted in the character of a good and perfect and powerful God himself. We have now in this passage that we've been working through over the last two or three weeks, we have this fork in the road now that is presented to us. As we read last week, the beginning of chapter 6, there are those who not only drift away from the faith, they let go of all of this that we have been given in Christ. Drift away from the faith, but Maybe even some of them fully and completely reject the faith. Then there are those whose hope is secure in God and whose lives make that hope clear, like Abraham's life. Think about Abraham, the promise. The writer is saying this. Think about Abraham, the promise that God gave him and all that Abraham did to obey God and pursue that promise and be faithful to God. That hope that Abraham had was obvious because of his life, because of what he did. We have those who drift from the faith, and we have those, and the writer says, I am sure this is you. There are those who hang on to that hope and live as if this is all true. So who are those who put their hope in Jesus Christ? Who are those who live their lives as if this hope is real? <clears throat> well, it isn't everyone. And understand how I say this. Here's the image God calls Abraham 
from one country and from his tribe to journey across the desert to go to another place where God's going to give him a home. So God pulls Abraham and his family out of this tribe to go over here and then begin to live in such a way that everyone around them sees who this one true God is. A little bit later on in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 8, here's how the story is described to us. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as an inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. If you're like me, you want to know where you're going. He went without knowing where he was going, but he knew who he was following, right? That's the idea. He knew who he was following, this God, so it's okay for me to go. God's call of salvation and relationship with Him is going to go out to all of humanity, but God does that through individuals and groups like Abraham and his family. You see, now Abraham and his family are called to begin a new life in a place where God is going to give the children of Abraham a place where they can worship God and stick out and be different, a place where they can live in a different way from everybody else, so the world can see who this God is and what life with this God is like. So they are called, the people of God are called to follow a different set of rules. The people of God are called to follow a different set of rules for life, to follow a different God than the rest of the world, to live as examples of God to the rest of the world. The phrase I want to use to describe who these people are is a phrase I'm going to return to later on in the book of Hebrews, and a phrase that's used in Scripture. It's something I want us to begin to figure out and wrestle with. These people who are called by God to live as seeds for His kingdom in this world are sometimes called the remnant. It's not everybody, but it's the people of God called to live so that others can see who God is is. The remnant are not only those who are called by Christ, but they begin to live lives for Christ. The remnant are God's children living as seeds of His kingdom in this world. We lead different lives. We follow this God instead of the other gods of the world around us. Thinking through the life of Abraham and this notion of a remnant, a group of people who are left called by God so the world can see him. I want to talk about some of the character traits of the remnant. I'm going to do this quickly and over time in Hebrews, we'll come back to some of these character traits. Who are these people who live like this? Who are these people who have this kind of hope? What are they like? Here's some thoughts. First of all, the remnant knows the value of the gospel. See, this is how we talked about the notion of apostasy and drifting away or even falling away from the faith last week. We talked about the extreme value of the gift that we have been given in Jesus Christ. See, the remnant has a sense of that. The remnant knows that. The remnant's ready to hang on to that no matter what. The remnant has a value, a sense of the value of the gospel. And as opposed to those who openly drift from it or reject it, they hang on to it no matter what. The remnant are contenders for the gospel. 
the remnant knows that there are other stories in the world around us. Political story, educational stories, philosophical stories, other religious stories, who tell us that, well, this is the way in which you're going to find meaning or hope or salvation in life, but the remnant knows that all of those are empty. All of those are false idols. All of those are false gods. The remnant knows the value of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Very much like Abraham, who followed God not even knowing where he was going. Can you imagine being committed enough to God to do that sort of thing? The remnant are all in. They're all in. These are people who are willing to give whatever needs to be given in order to advance the cause of this thing that is the most valuable thing in the universe. They're ready to give whatever needs to be given for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This reminds me of something that we read on Tuesday night just this last week. We read from um, a book called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It was a, a German pastor in the 30s and 40s who opposed the rise of the Nazi regime, got sideways with the Nazi regime, actually helped with the plot to kill Hitler, so found himself in these concentration camps. And then literally hours before his concentration camp was, uh, was, uh, was uh, uh, saved by the Allied troops, he was hung, he was martyred for what he did in the cause of the gospel. But here's what he writes in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, as he speaks of what he calls costly grace. Is this us? Is this me? He says this, Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. The remnant is all in. We know what it's going to cost. And whatever God is going to ask of me, may I be ready to give it. This is the remnant. This is who makes a difference. So the remnant's all in. The remnant also desires more of God and less of our secular age. Abraham called out from his family into a brand new land, a place where he would worship God. The remnant desires more and more of God and less and less of our secular age. There were promises of stability and life as normal for Abraham where he was, but he knew there was a greater promise, the promise of God that was ahead of him and his family, and then any who follow him. So the remnant learns to reject, to identify and to reject the idols of our age. The remnant disconnects themselves from all of these idols, and they journey into a different country. And then they show whoever's watching the way of Jesus. So the remnant is ready to do this. I want more and more of God and less and less of these false and empty and hollow stories that the world tells me about what my life means, who's going to save me, how it's going to happen, what kind of this and that I should buy. I want less of that, and I want more and more of God. 
the remnant. I've used this word before, and we'll come back to it later in Hebrews. The remnant will contend for the church, and they will contend for their city as well. Guys, the lives of the remnant have a preserving effect, and they have an inspiring effect. Jesus said His children would be salt and light in this world. And He said, in fact, it's possible for salt to lose its saltiness, and then it's just, eh, throw it out. It's possible to take light and put a cover over it so that nobody sees it. But that's not who the remnant are. That's not who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. We're salt. We get into this world whether they like it or not. We're light, showing who Christ is. Abraham brought his whole family with him, and many follow in his footsteps. And guys, the faithful children of God who have anchored themselves in Jesus Christ learn how to go through the work and the grind of their daily lives, but as sacrificial contenders for the kingdom of God. This is who the remnant is. This is who begins to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And then, especially as we think of Palm Sunday and what this week means. We notice this about the remnant as well. One last thought about this. The remnant contends for the glory of our coming King. Palm Sunday. It's a fascinating story. Jesus has been walking with His disciples, teaching, healing for three, three and a half years. This time when he enters the city of Jerusalem, you've got this great to-do. He's on this donkey that's been given to him by another man. And this crowd just shows up and they wave these palm branches and they lay their cloaks before him. And as Jesus makes his way into the city of Jerusalem, riding on that donkey, he's hailed as the coming king. Here's how that story goes in Mark chapter 11, verses 7 through 10. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed, the crowd all around him was shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The Old Testament speaks of this moment. It says the Messiah will come into the city on Mount Zion, riding on a donkey, the colt of a donkey, humble. You see, when Jesus walks into, rides into the city of Jerusalem at this point, He's going to the cross. That's where He's going to be in just a few days. That's where He lets Himself go. So the cross, the grave, and then resurrection. But we know that's not the end of the story. The people of God are here on earth to contend for the glory of that king. Because you see, guys, the story of Palm Sunday causes us to remember who Christ was and what Christ did for us, but it also causes us to look forward to when he will come back again as king of kings and as lord of lords and all of his power and all of his might and in all of his glory. So now, today, the remnant, the children of God, they contend for the glory of our coming King. Listen to how Paul puts this. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, 
And as he unfolds this to Timothy and to us, listen to the language of what it means to live like this. We get the language of Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, but listen again about what it means for us to live as if this is true. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at his proper time, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one else has seen or can see, to Him be honor in eternal dominion. Amen. I charge you, in the name of this King of kings, to contend for His glory and to live for Him, and to prepare yourself for His coming. And as we anchor ourselves in the hope of Jesus Christ, we prepare ourselves for the coming of our King. Let's pray.